I was what's known as a staff operations officer. Uh, many people get that wrong. Many people get a lot of the roles at CIA wrong because- I did too when I started. There's a huge like curtain yeah. between what the public thinks CIA is and what CIA actually is. I worked a lot of hard targets. I think the targeting that most people are probably familiar with is uh, capture kill. And capture, kill, collect. Capture, kill, collect. But usually in the war zone, it was generally capture, kill. <laughs> <laughs> when there's a group of people mm -hmm. and you want to cause discourse, yeah. what's the first thing you do to that group of people? You touch on their fears. You divide the group. You divide them. You divide the group, mm -hmm. right? What is polarization? It's division. It's a division of the group, mm -hmm. right? This is Espionage 101. This yeah. is Covert Influence 101. And yet we live in this world, you and I, where we see it play out in the headlines every day. What we're doing right now is actually unprecedented. Hey everybody, I am so excited to introduce you to the new studio and the new Everyday Spy podcast. And this is something that's been in the works for much longer than you know about. Uh, and it's the very first episode, so we're free to make all the mistakes we need to make, which is really good because my co-host for this podcast is going to be my lovely spouse, Jihi Bustamante. Jihi, say hello to everybody. Hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, is going to be with me on every episode just about. We don't know yet whether or not we're going to take guests. So I guess the first thing I would invite you to do is if you think we should invite guests into this podcast, drop us a comment. Give us some suggestions on who you think we should let into the studio. I'm thinking about calling the studio the safe house. I like it. Do you like that? Everybody's safe here. Or nothing is safe here. <laughs> <laughs> well, no conversation topic is safe here. Exactly right. Exactly right. But the whole idea here is basically to be able to deliver through YouTube at this level of uh, this level of production quality, mm -hmm. a meaningful conversation with two former covert intelligence officers who are also a married couple. What we're doing right now is actually unprecedented. That's it. Yeah. There's CIA officers who have shows. Mm -hmm. There are CIA officers who are married to each other. Mm -hmm but there are not two CIA officers that people can actually speak to through a chat box or anywhere else that are live on YouTube at any given time. That's fair. Right? Well, I'm happy to be the trailblazer. So are you actually, because let's, let's, <laughs> let's be honest, let's be honest. I've been building Everyday Spy since 2019. Uh -huh. You have been increasing your involvement, but you made it really clear in like 2020, 2021, yeah. that you did not want to be on screen. You did not that want to be- correct. I did not want to be a face. Why? Uh, so I am always behind the scenes. Even when we met, I was a targeter. You were on the, I mean, I was technically on the op side, but you were actually doing operations. And targeters are the people who sit in the closet <laughs> inside of a skiff inside of another skiff, <laughs> typing on our little computers, and I had my little earbuds in, and nobody saw my face, except when I had to brief every once in a while at a meeting. So this is a really good chance, I think, to introduce the difference between our two roles at CIA, mm -hmm. right? So let's start with you. What is a targeter? What's the publicly available definition of a targeter? So a targeter is a person who um, you know, policy makers uh, come down with requirements and a targeter is the one who finds the people who can fulfill those requirements. So in intelligence, it's finding the person who has access to the secret information we want. 
And then we um, use data to pull together dossiers. So an operator can go out and meet that person and um, make them an asset for the U.S. government and get secrets. Can you give us an example that's CIA acceptable of, of a, a case where you did that? Um, so I worked a lot of hard targets. I think the targeting that most people are probably familiar with is uh, capture, kill. And capture, kill, collect. Capture, kill, collect. But usually in the war zone, it was generally capture, kill, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is why I ended up doing um, you know, a lot of hard targets because most of those are collect. Mm. Um, but I think what most people are familiar with are, um, and you can look it up on the internet as well, um, targeting packages that have you know, the person's face, the their name, their bio data, family information, their location. Um, and then that is given to an operator in the field or that's given to a drone operator. And then they go in and do the actual operation. The operation being capture, kill or collect. Or collect. Yes. <laughs> so you, you were the one that got to identify who is capture, killed yes. or collected Correct. against. Right? Yes. Yep. Fair, fair. Okay. So, and then my role at CIA, mm -hmm. I was what's known as a staff operations officer. Mm -hmm. uh, many people get that wrong. Many people get a lot of the roles at CIA wrong because... I did too when I started. There's a huge like curtain yeah. between what the public thinks CIA is and what CIA mm -hmm. actually is. Mm -hmm. So CIA is kind of, it's the central intelligence agency, which means it is the central hub of intelligence. The, that terminology comes from the fact that all source intelligence, all source meaning DOD intelligence, NSA intelligence, NGA intelligence, all comes through CIA for final analytical consumption and mm -hmm. synthesizing before it's delivered to the president via the president's daily brief. Correct. That's where the central intelligence comes from. But what CIA actually does is foreign collection of human intelligence, mm -hmm. human. Yep. Again, people don't realize that, right? And NSA does all the SIGINT collection. Mm -hmm. DOD so cool. does, DIA does all <laughs> the the military collection. Yeah. They just feed it to us. And then our analytical workforce is what creates mm -hmm. the product, if you will, right? right? So within that universe of human intelligence collection, you were a targeter targeting human intelligence sources. Mm -hmm. I was a staff operations officer building and, and sometimes operating to collect that intelligence. Mm -hmm. And within the, the world that we come from, there are other roles too. There are case officers, mm -hmm. also known as ops officers or mm -hmm. operations officers. There's paramilitary operators. Mm -hmm. There's special skills officers. There's mm -hmm. linguists. Uh, there's kinetic targeters, mm -hmm. analytical targeters, tech officers. There's yeah. a, I mean, it's a whole yeah. smorgasbord of, mm -hmm. of badassery happening yeah. inside CIA. But me being staff operations officer, you being a targeter, we met mm -hmm. very shortly after we joined in 2007. Yeah. And we'll save our whole life love day. story for a different day, <laughs> right? But the point is you and I get a chance to have these conversations. We get to talk about anything we wanna talk about mm -hmm. and we get to bring an audience along with us. You get to come along with us. And we, there are three areas that we always want to discuss on every single podcast. First, we wanna talk about our lives. Mm -hmm. Our lives as a married couple, our lives as entrepreneurs, yep. as parents, as individuals, mm -hmm. as Americans. Yeah. As Americans going through this great American experiment, because we're still very much in an American experiment. And I think yeah. that's important, right? What are your yeah. thoughts on where the United States is on its American experiment journey? 
Yeah, I think it's fascinating because um, we were just reading um, our son loves the I Survived books. And we were are actually just reading for the second or third time now, I Survived the American Revolution. And it's fascinating to think about that we are still a very young country. Mm -hmm. We are still an experiment. You know, I think people take for granted that democracy is the way and it's and it's it, it works and it's, you know, the, the end all be all and, you know, this is the way everybody should be. But really, America is still, I mean, I think you can see election after election, we're still trying to figure out the path. We are still confused. <laughs> we are still, <laughs> you know, people evolve, society evolves, the government has to evolve with it. The way our government looked when it started is not the way it looks now. Um, you know, the power of the executive, the roles of the, the other two branches, you know, it's, it looks different now. I mean, when they started talking, when I think a couple of years ago, um, there was a question of, should we add more justices to the Supreme Court? Mm. And I, I was, I, my mind was blown. I was like, wow, what a question to hear. Um, so, you know, over the years, our government has continued to evolve. So I completely agree. I mean, it's an experiment and I don't think it will ever be settled. You know, I think we're always trying to find the better path. What was the American government supposed to be when it was founded? How would you define that? So it's interesting because I, uh, I went to law school and I did a study abroad in Argentina. And so uh, one of the classes I took was uh, a class on um, how Latin America developed. And um, the, one of the key things I learned at that time was that America had their battle with, with the British and then you know America won and the British, and then eventually we developed trade ties with the British, right? Latin America fought Spain multiple times. Mm. And so the way that Latin American governments developed was that they put a lot of power in the executive because they needed the executive to be able to like that, go to war because Spain kept attacking them. Yeah. But America wasn't created that way. In the beginning, the executive really had not a lot of power at all. All of the power was supposed to reside in Congress with um, the Supreme Court as as a check, you know, a check and a balance on the Constitution that they had put so much time writing. Right now, we've seen this big evolution where the executive has been gaining power, um, you know, and then I, I think a lot of people misunderstand the way that the the judicial branch is supposed to work at that level. Um, but you know. Congress itself, I think, has always had its, its um, you know, it's never functioned smoothly, I don't think. Um, but I think people might be losing sight of how it's actually supposed to function. Like, it is supposed to function. You're not supposed to, you know, make a last minute budget every yeah. time the budget comes yeah. due. <laughs> like, you can have conflict and you can have nasty debates, but you're supposed to keep moving, right? Like, so I think your point is really interesting about the difference between the executive in Latin America or Latin American countries mm -hmm. and the executive essentially in North American countries, of which the United States yeah. is one of two. Right. <laughs> I guess technically, is Mexico North America? I think it might be. Yes. And as far as the continent goes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got three executives in North America mm -hmm. and we have, what, like nine how many, 13? How oh, many countries are in South America? Yeah, exactly. And Central <laughs> Central America is also in there too. So there's a lot of executives that had yeah. to fight Spain. Yeah. And they do, and they evolved their governments a different way than yes. the way that we involved our government. Now, yeah. where do you think 
where do you think our president, our executive got, let me phrase it differently. How did our executive get the president? <laughs> how did our executive get the power that was originally reserved for the Congress? How did that migration or evolution happen? I believe, oh, I know people are going to make comments on my historic <laughs> knowledge. I have a good friend who I wish it was here. Now, can I phone a friend? Phone a friend? <laughs> I don't think we're allowed to have friends. Oh, <laughs> oh don't, don't tell my friend that. Um, <laughs> so I believe, um, if I remember correctly, the powers of the executive started to change um, around the, the Great Depression. Um, so we, you were just at the FDR, the yep. FDR monument, um, you know, and he had four consecutive terms. That's when they put the presidential term limit in, when, which, during his fourth term, um, after he passed away, I believe. And, um, and I believe that that's when um, he started to, you know, the executive started to take more of the reins of, I need to get stuff done, right? Because and before that, the president was really kind of the vision setter, um, from my understanding of, you know, he set the vision for the country, but it was up to Congress, who represented the people, mm -hmm. to act, to make that happen. So I feel like what you're saying is the much nicer version of what I understand, mm -hmm. too. And this is the way that, that our relationship has always functioned. You say things the nice way. <laughs> I try to say things the direct way. Congress gave the president the power that used to belong to them because Congress is stuck in this constant cycle of having to get reelected, mm. right? They're in a two-year cycle. Mm -hmm. So every time a congressperson wants to be reelected, they're basically, they just got elected mm -hmm. and they have to be reelected again. Yeah, it is. So I do that find it interesting. to please the people, mm -hmm. they basically outsource their power to the executive. So now they can blame the president when the president oversteps power that was given to the president by the Congress. Well, I think it's interesting because senators have what, like a six year term and then the representatives have a two year term. And the fact that, you know, at some point they deemed it necessary to limit a president to two four year terms but they have never found it necessary to, to change themselves. their own terms, right? <laughs> Whether to lengthen or shorten yeah. a term and to limit themselves, which I am a huge fan of. I don't believe that people should have a 30-year career in Congress. I mean, I really feel like, how can you inject the government with new ideas mm. if you're doing that? Um, so anyways, that can be another conversation. But um, I do think that, you know, there were, there are a lot of, uh, when you look at laws and policies, oftentimes they're worded in a way where there's leeway. Mm. So maybe something, you know, the president was given, you know, a certain degree of power. And then over time, a clever president is like, you know what? I need more. Somebody find me a way around this. Or a disaster happens. Does. Yeah. Or a disaster happens. A disaster Correct. happens. And then the yes. Congress is like, president, take the power. Yes. Right? Take That's the power, fair. make the decisions. Because we start finding ourselves in the same scenario that we that the Latin Americans found themselves right. in. Right? The Latin American countries found themselves in. Constantly attacked by some outside force. Yeah. So I know that we are very deep in a social studies conversation right now. <laughs> I slept through most of social studies in, was it middle school or was it high school? I was asleep. So I don't really remember. <laughs> Middle school. Probably. It was middle school, right? Yeah. So leave it. If you want us to continue down this road of social studies, uh, leave it in the comments and we'll come back to it in a future episode. But the next thing I want to do is I want to actually transition because we were just recently visiting Washington, D.C. Yes. And we took our children with us to D.C. We have our godparents live in the D.C. area. The godparents for our children live in the D.C. area. And we've had a very interesting relationship with Washington, D.C. I think mm -hmm. together and separately. Uh, tell me a little bit about 
what are your thoughts when you visit DC now? So it's interesting because every time I land, I have, it's all nostalgia mm. where, you know, that's where I met you. That's where we fell in love. That's where we got engaged. You fell in love first. There. What? You fell in love first. I definitely fell in you love first. I'm a strong yes, man. Sweet. Strong man. <laughs> yes. All the ladies okay. fall for me. <laughs> Nobody um, has to know that's I all was fake. Definitely <laughs> head over heels. Um, so there's all this this nostalgia of you know our wonderful life together, our career at CIA, um, our friends there. Mm. It was really such a great experience. Um, which you know to be honest was a life before we had children. Yeah. Also. Um, so I always have to remind myself that our life there, had we stayed there with children, would have looked very differently. But for me, it's all this, you know, it's all these wonderful memories. And then on the ride from the airport to our friend's house, I hit traffic. <laughs> and it is so horrible. I yeah. mean, it was bad before, but the traffic is just increasing. Um, and then I think to myself, why do they keep increasing the government presence in this one location? Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, population density and sustainability for that area, you know, it's it's not I it's not sustainable. Yeah. Second, you know, quality of life for versus the versus cost of living. Right. Cost of living. I mean, think about the quality of life for the people, for the civil servants hmm. working for the government. I think right? we did some research while we were there. Cost of living in Washington, DC right mm -hmm. now is Fifty percent more than cost of living in another major metropolis, Denver. Yeah, so Falls Church, Virginia, which is like a small neighborhood in that Northern Virginia area, in that DC metro area, was forty percent more than than cost of living in, in Denver. That's and, incredible. Yeah, and I thought it was incredible. And then you know, the second I've always said this is security. Hmm. I mean, you have all of your important government offices there. It just takes one attack yeah. in one location. You know, why wouldn't we? diversify the locations of our offices. We don't have to be that close. And we don't have to have all of your personnel in that city. And when you say attack, I think the conventional thought that goes through most people's mind is a nuke or cluster bombs or something in one area. But what you and I know is that there are many far many worse ways. attacks. Yeah. You could attack the water source. Yeah. And the water source is shared by the entire Washington yeah. DC metro area. Power grid. Power grid, all shared, yeah. right? You could attack any number of, of uh, of institutions in that area, right? You could put bad medicine onto shelves. Mm -hmm. You could compromise cybersecurity. There's all sorts of attacks yeah. that will still infiltrate and affect the entire population dense area. Yeah, It's not just a nuke that comes from the sky and we're gonna shoot it down. There's right. scarier things out there than bombs that go boom, yeah. right? But I completely agree. My relationship with Washington DC is not that different from yours. There's a lot of nostalgia there, mm -hmm. but there's also, I mean, I'm coming from a military background. I know you don't have a military background yourself. I can't help but feel frustration when I go to Washington, D.C. Like, it's such a beautiful place. It's such a paradox. Yeah. It's gorgeous. It's historical. It's white marble. It's like timeless. It yeah. shows the strength of America, mm -hmm. but it's also a facade. It's not real. Mm -hmm. right? We're, it's a giant propaganda city, right? This idea that America's best, America first, America makes no mistakes, America's the strongest, America's, mm -hmm. you know, the savior of the world. That's the message of Washington, D.C. Every monument you walk through is bigger mm -hmm. than life, yeah. polished marble, polished bronze, polished granite. It's the, it's the highlights. It's the Instagram of a president's term. Yeah. Which Here's, has its place. It's got its place. Yeah, for sure. But let's not let's let's not for, forget that we made some massive mistakes. Yeah. 
-hmm. in the history of our country, right? FDR is a fantastic example of one of those beautiful monuments, Mm -hmm. but he was president for four terms. People don't even realize we had a four-term president, right? Like that's that's wild. He was a president for such a long period of time and he was handicapped Mm -hmm. and they hid his handicap from the American people. Because they were afraid that if the American people thought their president was ill or handicapped, he would be he would be judged as not qualified for the job, right? Yeah, so it wasn't I mean, until like 2007 or something that his monument displayed his wheelchair. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's insane. It's just yeah. wild to think about the evolution of our country over time. So when I go to Washington, D.C., I have those conflicting emotions where I'm very proud of my country. I'm very mm-hmm. proud to be an American. But at the same time, as a 43-year-old father of two now... Mm-hmm. I realized there's a narrative there. And I was absolutely the person who, when I got recruited by CIA, Mm as soon as I landed in DC, babe, I don't know about you, I pulled out my little pocket cell phone and I drove with one hand and I was taking pictures of the buildings (laughs) with the other hand. I was like, I'm so excited to be here. Well, we both know I'm a safer driver than you are. So I actually (laughs) took the time out to properly go to the monuments on my feet. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, something you're saying there is, that's interesting is, and we've talked about this too, is it's it's a bit of a fishbowl. So you go there and almost everybody you meet, I mean- They care about your us, politics first. Right, almost everybody you meet is has some kind of foot in government, whether yeah. they're private sector or public sector, they have some kind of foot in politics and geopolitics. That's the conversation, which is fantastic, but mm. it's not in line with the rest of the country either. Yeah. So you know, having all the people who represent everybody else in the country in one place, it really keeps them out of touch with what the rest of with the country- With their own constituents. With their own constituents. So if you started moving the offices out, right? I mean, I met a guy when I started at the agency, um, he was from Kentucky and he was so different. I mean, his it was just fantastic to meet him and talk to him. And he had come from um, a different sector in Kentucky and now he was there and I thought, oh, you know, and, but it was a big, also a big, um, like challenge for him to move. Cause he was moving his mm. wife who had been a teacher. They had been established. Right. And they had to move all the way to DC. Like if you take these government offices and you put them in different places around the country, how many more people might have the opportunity, right? Because a lot of people are tandem. A lot of people are taking their spouse, right? So how many more people might have the opportunity? How much more diverse could the government workforce be? Mm. Right. How, how many more diverse ideas could we add to the pot, hmm. right? How much do we value diversity, right? I would say we that's another question. <laughs> well, I, I say I, it, yeah. and I say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. because it's a catchphrase, right? Diversity is absolutely like a, mm-hmm. whatever they call those words now the, that people get really excited about, right? Mm. But it's this hot keyword, this hot button mm-hmm. for for so many people, right? right we need to right, increase right. diversity, embrace diversity, et cetera, et cetera. But but do we really? Because mm-hmm. we're willing to say we need to diversify and include more of a certain ethnicity or mm-hmm. a certain gender or you know mm-hmm. people who identify as a specific gender or identify as a specific ethnicity. I don't even know all the things that now qualify as diversity. Right. But what we don't really want is diversity of thought. thought. Mm-hmm. We still want very important. rigid, very structured, democratic, capitalist thought. Right. We don't want to be open to anybody who talks differently than that, right? Otherwise, we start having to label them. It's right. like we're still stuck in the D.C. of the Nixon years where everybody was trying to chase down oh, yeah. communists. Yeah. I mean, I do think I think that there's been a loss of 
of proper discourse, right? Or people exchanging ideas. I mean, the fact that that the country's become so polarized um, is really sad and unnecessary. You know, I mean, there's there's no reason for us to be entrenched in our ideology and and have that ideology shaped by um, by headlines or yeah. by um, you know, short, uh, what are they called? Like short snippets of, you know, no, nobody's looking at a full story anymore. They're reading a headline or a, a tweet, a tweet, you know, just, yeah, like less than 250 words, and, you know, <laughs> whole idea presented whole, to you. Yeah. Whole idea presented to you. You know, I mean, we talked to, um, we have an intern that works for us and she was talking about a previous internship she did. She did. That was a journalism internship and how disappointed she was that where she was, not all the facts were represented. Yeah, by the journalistic community. By the journalistic community. Um, you know, both sides aren't represented anymore. And it's just, it's a shame. It's a skill that we've lost that we really need to regain. So if we're going to get ourselves together and be on top. So I'm going to I'm gonna transition us really briefly because I feel like there's a really important spy lesson here that you and I know, right? An espionage lesson in real life. And this is what made our company, right? Everyday Spy right. was built on the idea that maybe we could teach people some of the skills that the CIA taught us mm -hmm. that helped us survive outside of CIA. Mm -hmm. Really helped us survive inside of CIA, but yeah. helped us to thrive and succeed outside of CIA. So you talk about our polarized country mm -hmm. and you talk about how unnecessary it is yeah. and how disappointing and discouraging it is, right? You served in an office designed to influence foreign governments. Mm. What was one of the core things that you tried to do in that office to influence those governments? So it's really interesting um, when it comes to, you know, all, all intelligence agencies around the world engage in covert influence and propaganda as a part of that, right? Um, inside their own country, governments and private sector, yep. you know, propaganda and influence is, is huge. Um, and it's really just psychology, right? It's knowing the psychology of, it's knowing how the psychology of, of people work. Um, I'm gonna interrupt you again, yeah. because again, I see my, my wife being very nice <laughs> in the explanation, right? When there's a group of people mm -hmm. and you wanna cause discourse, yeah. what's the first thing you do to that group of people? You touch on their fears. You divide the group. You divide them. You divide the group, mm -hmm. right? What is polarization? Right, it's division. It's a division of the group, mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't take much. It does not take much at no. all, right? You can literally sit between two friends who've been friends for years, mm -hmm. and there will be certain topics mm -hmm. that causes one of them fear, anger, discouragement, disappointment, childhood mm -hmm. trauma, whatever. Yeah. You can just drop that one bit into the conversation and they will be divided, Yeah. right? So it's strategic. In the covert influence world, the first thing you want to do is you want to divide a group. Yeah. And you don't divide a group by creating something new and artificial. How do you divide a group? Right. You just play on their the, the same old fears. That are already, already existing. Exist. Already right? pre-existing. This group of people is afraid of what happens if mm -hmm. uh, banana sales drop. Yeah. This group of people is afraid of what happens if we accept too much foreign investment. Mm -hmm. And then all you do is you just feed the fear that already exists to both groups. Yeah. And then that makes them both afraid. And then especially if you as the voice in between say that the reason foreign investment is gonna mm -hmm. stop is because you know, sales of bananas are going down. Yeah. And then you say, oh, the reason that banana sales 
are you know need to go up is because mm-hmm. if they don't go up, then there's going to be no foreign investment. Now all of a sudden the two groups are attacking each other. Right. This is this is espionage 101. This yeah. is covert influence 101. Yeah. And yet we live in this world, you and I, where we see it play out in the headlines every day. Mm-hmm. And I, the thing that's the most frustrating to me, is yes, I see it when it's Russia. I feel like I see it when it's China. I feel like I see the sloppiness of it when it's North Korea mm-hmm. attacking us. Mm-hmm. The thing that's so frustrating is we do it to ourselves. Oh, yeah. Just to sell newspapers, just to get clicks, yeah. just to sell advertisements. Mm-hmm. We do this to ourselves. Yeah. I mean, this it costs millions of dollars for an intelligence service to divide a country. We're doing it to ourselves. We're bankrolling it ourselves. Yeah. For what yeah. purpose? Right? For what purpose? So well, for clicks. For clicks. <laughs> Why don't we start a YouTube channel? For, some, for advertising revenue. <laughs> for clicks. The whole world runs on clicks. Oh my gosh. Eat that, yeah. Duncan. Yeah. And what's the world it, runs on clicks. What's a shame now is that it's so much easier now because of how information travels and how information is delivered. You know, you don't have people having, you know, political discussions over dinner with their neighbors, yeah. right? Like you have people who feel anonymous online saying whatever nasty thing they want to, parroting and repeating things and not even bothering to look up to see is is it is any of it even true? Yeah. You know, not even bothering to think why might something be happening, right? Like you even if you see somebody take a certain action, why are they taking that action? Like it's not, it doesn't matter. They just blast them right away. So, anonymity online. Mm. Is it real? Is uh, is Mama's Boy 101, <laughs> who's on Discord, who's trash talking the president, actually anonymous? I mean, I think anything digital can be traced. I mean, if you think that anything you do online is private, that is wrong. <laughs> um, not that. Not to say that you know somebody's watching all your data all the time, because that's also wrong. Um, but the fact is that if it's online, there's a record. Somebody can dig into it if they wanted to. Right. That's always the key that, that that gets me when people are like, the government's looking at all my stuff. The government's not looking at all your stuff. Facebook might be looking at all your stuff because they advertise to you, right? But it's all there. Right. You know, like it's much less secure than if I wrote you a letter. Right. Right. It's really interesting to me because, you know, in the argument for privacy, you and I, I think, come from the school of... Mm of privacy is one thing that lands on a spectrum. CIA taught us there was a spectrum, a spectrum between security and convenience. Right. Privacy lands on the convenience side, Mm. which means the closer you get to something that's convenient, the further you are from something being secure. And what does national security want? Secure. Right. But secure is not convenient. Right. Just think about like, I don't like to lock doors. (laughs) You lock every door in the house. Yep, all the time. <laughs> it's really inconvenient. It's really inconvenient when I come home late and I want to go to bed and I have to unlock the front door, relock the front door, unlock yeah. the bedroom door, relock the bedroom door, unlock my own bathroom door to get to the bathroom. It's not convenient, but it is secure. It is secure. Right? So privacy lands on the convenient side of that. And the problem is that our world, our government especially, mm-hmm. is the target of every government in the world. We're the target of terrorists. We're the target of drug dealers. We're the target of other aspiring superpowers. With all those attacks, we simply can't afford to be convenient. Among all the American citizens trying to have their privacy are also 
nefarious actors taking advantage yeah. of our privacy laws. Yeah. So to your point, all of the data is accessible. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of filling out a few forms so the judicial system allows us to tap Facebook on the shoulder, tap Apple on the shoulder, yeah. tap Google on the shoulder and say, show us your records pertaining to yeah. this individual, this IP address, this metadata, whatever right. it might be. And it's not easy. It's not like I meet Joe Blow at the coffee shop and I'm like, I'm going to look Joe Blow up and fill out my little request form. Right. No. Like when you fill out that request form, you have to have so much evidence to present that they are a nefarious actor. Like that there is a good solid reason that you need access to their data. It's very strict. I think it's much stricter than people give it credit for. Um, so, you know, there's you have to build a case to access data on somebody who is mm -hmm. an American citizen. Right. And, you know, I think it's on I, someone who's an American citizen. Correct. Because or, someone who's a foreigner inside the United States, you don't have the same level of rigor. Right. But if the data is inside the United States, there's still Correct. regulations, there's still regulations. Right? Um, I think what's interesting that that I what I find interesting that I don't think people consider is that they look at themselves in the mirror and they're like American citizen. Mm. They're not thinking about the foreign actor who comes to America, who's playing the long game for their government, who becomes an American citizen. Yeah. Right. Like you aren't who I'm who I'm targeting. I'm targeting mm -hmm. the person from a hard target country who, you know, they're like, there are these long operations that happen yeah. where the whole goal is for the people to come over and become a citizen or become a green card holder, right? It's it's not often, which is why those requests don't happen very often, right. but they exist. The Russians call them illegals. Mm -hmm. The yes. Chinese call them plants. Mm -hmm. Terrorist cells call them seeds. Yep. Right. Yeah. Like all of these are long term ideas. Yeah. Right. Whereas for us, we're stuck to a five year budgetary cycle that Congress can't agree on. <laughs> so it's really hard for us to run a 15 year game. operation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, going back to everybody, uh, because we're now deep in the spy espionage niche, mm -hmm. if anybody wants to hear more spy espionage niche stuff, please drop in the comments. <laughs> we're going to move on because we don't really know what you want to hear yet. And we're going to learn from you. So please drop that in there. I have got to ask you, what are your thoughts on AI? You come from a world where you were the targeter. You were the one looking things up on people. You were the one people went to when they wanted to get all the nasty, dirty secrets about somebody. Now there's a machine that can do that for you. How do you feel about AI? So I'm a huge fan of the Terminator. And you hear me call AI Skynet all the time. I'm just waiting. I was like, oh my gosh, Skynet. It's been invented. Um, and then is your next thought, hooray? Or is your next no. thought, oh no? My next thought is, <laughs> oh no, our government is never going to be able to regulate this in time. Yep. Um, so I find AI to be very interesting, but I think it's very dangerous. And I think we really need to tread lightly. Um, in my personal opinion, I think I see the potential for it, but I think that we as a society, as a world, need to decide the purpose of AI. How will we use it? Mm. Because it has tons of nefarious abilities. I mean, we were just talking about covert influence and propaganda, right? We were just talking about how people are not inclined to research, right? So the idea that an AI can create fake artwork or a deep fake video, I mean, 
and people will just take it at face value. Right. That's terrifying. Absolutely and, terrifying. And they'll create it at the speed of machines, not yes. at the speed of human video producers and actors and yes. and post editors and everything else. Right. So can you imagine like a foreign government, you know, I mean, how much easier does that make their job to be able to program an AI to just, you know, this is the theme of what I want to push. And yeah. then they start pushing that information and people believe it because they're not fact checking. So how do you feel about the fact that if our government does legislate AI, that doesn't mean that our opponents will also legislate AI or legislate it in the same way right. or legislate it equally between public sector and national security sector. Right. I mean, I think, you know, I think like, like lots of things in the field of science, I really think it, it really needs to be a global effort. Um, but I, on the other, you know, a global effort government wise, but I think people really just need to take personal responsibility in recognizing you know, understanding what AI is, understanding what it can do, understanding that it exists now. So every time you see information, you really do need to check. You really need to fact check now. Um, you know, not that you didn't need to before, but even more reason yeah. for you to understand that what you're looking at may not be real. Security and convenience. Security and convenience. Yeah, just, AI is very convenient. Right. Right. I mean, but, you know, it's funny because we, I feel you know, we we strive for this life of convenience, and I can't say that I'm 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 definitely a person who likes to be comfortable and convenient. But I am learning as I age that life is not about convenience. Life is about putting the effort, you know, doing the hard thing to make sure that it's the right thing. Right. That's not what life is about. Thing. I think life is about doing the right thing, which is hard. Which is hard. But you don't like to do hard things. I, I'm learning <laughs> <laughs> as I age. <laughs> so I spent, I feel like I spent a good number of years doing the convenient thing. But now, you know, and I have my own children and I'm thinking about their future mm. too. And I'm thinking about the future of the country and the future of the globe. You know, and it's it's not, it doesn't work. Let's shout out to parents on this one, yeah. right? Because this is a conversation that all the single sons of bitches out there I love you and I hate and, you at the same time, single people. Sleeping in. <laughs> Sex with multiple partners. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> no schedule, no responsibilities. You can just walk out the door yep. whenever you want to. Nobody comes and pokes you in the forehead and says, My tummy hurts at four yeah. o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So, single, unattached people go to hell for a second. But parents, <laughs> parents uh -huh. get us. Yeah. And parents get what we're talking about. The world that we're worried about is not a world that we're worried about for us. Right. It's a world that we're worried about for our next generation, for our progeny, for our legacy. Yeah. Because my children, our children, are too young right now to shape the world. Right. But you and I are in the prime age. Of shaping, yeah. And if we don't do what we can do to shape it now, mm -hmm. what, what are we leaving them? Yeah. Right? And I find that this is something that parents... Parents think about this all the time. Yeah. It keeps them up at night. They talk about it over beer and wine at night, whenever they go to sleep, whatever. It's, it's the reason why when you marry somebody, you love them. And then when you start a family with somebody, you're in constant conflict. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like you don't see eye to eye. You may have seen eye to eye on starting life together, yeah. but you may not see eye to eye on shaping life. 
together, right? And especially when you start mixing in careers and, and fitness levels and body changes, women's hormones change, men's hormones change, like things that were perky start to sag, things that were strong get soft for men, right? Like we change and the change sucks, but nobody ever talks about that when you first get married. So mm -hmm. how do you, how do you plan to shape the future for our children? What are you doing? How are you executing on that? You know, it's interesting because parenting is, I take parenting day by day. I have, I have an idea. So I read a lot of books, number one. Um, and then I kind of think about, you know, a reflection of how was I raised? What did I like about it? What didn't I like about it? And then I read books for other ideas. I talk, I love talking to parents about how they raise their children because I, I do firmly believe that it's, you know, much of parenting is very family centric. Mm. So just because another family does something different than me, like that's good for their family, maybe not for my family, right? And that's fine. Um, so as far as shaping, I'm trying to, you know, I have core values, so do you, and I think we overlap fairly well in our core values. And so trying Stop to- Stop bad guys, help good guys. Yeah. Drink and... quality wine. <laughs> well, I... Good core values. <laughs> good core values. Yeah, I mean, you know, take care of your body. You only have one. You know, respect, you know, respect yourself, mm. respect others, mm. right? Like the, the golden rule, um, you know, and it, when they're kids, it's it's fairly simple, you know, like how how would that make you feel? How does that make your friend feel? That's very simple. It's as as they age that the situations come up where you're like, oh, like how do I handle this where it's kind of not fair to either side? Mm. Or, you know, or maybe they're just different and that's okay, but how do you teach them the skills to interact and build relationships with other people and to build a better world, mm. right? Like um, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I know you want a better world for our kids. I do. And what makes me, what makes me pity you, <laughs> but also what makes me proud of you mm -hmm. is that you're constantly struggling with the way that you were raised Yeah, because you were raised in a family of a belief set that says that you have to sacrifice for others mm. and you want your children to believe something different. But your instinctive reaction is to teach them, is to act the same way that you were trained and taught to act. Yeah. So they get this very confusing message mm -hmm. as to whether they need to sacrifice for others or whether they're allowed to stand their ground. And our five-year-old stands her ground sometimes, mm -hmm. and you're like, I'm so proud of her for standing her ground. Mm -hmm. And then other times, she'll stand her ground, and you'll be like, why is she standing her ground on something so trivial, right? And our and yeah. vice versa, our 10-year-old mm -hmm. will sacrifice on something oh, yeah. and just and just it'll consume him. Yeah. And you'll be like, you didn't have to do that. It was very sweet and very kind and very generous of you, mm -hmm. but you didn't have to do that. And it's really hard because he got the version of you mm -hmm. when you were a parent of one. Yeah. She gets the version of you when you are an experienced parent. Mm -hmm. So even our children themselves, they don't get the same parent. Right. And they get parents that evolve. And that's what's interesting is parents are constantly evolving themselves. So when I think about how I was raised and my belief system. So when I was young, I was raised, I was raised Buddhist and it was all, you know, world peace, right? It was all, 
let's help other people and world peace. And then as I went through my youth, you know, my parents are very liberal. I come from a very liberal family. And when I got into undergrad, I was so liberal that I fell into a category called progressive. Um, and I was like, let's save everybody and whatever. And then I went to law school. And law school really brought me center because suddenly I was in an environment where I was surrounded by people that were very different from me. Um, and there were liberal people there too, but they were, I was suddenly, I, I was the most conservative people I've ever met. Mm. You know, like the most number of conservative people, suddenly I'm friends with them and I'm hearing all these different perspectives and I'm hearing them, um, you know, I'm hearing perspectives from like legal perspectives, which are very black and white. Um, you know, uh, so that was the beginning of my evolution from well, the way I was raised to become more center to my time at the CIA, where there were also like I met the most amazing people, really diverse viewpoints. And that's when I started to really think about, you know, when like I'd always been registered a Democrat for voting purposes. And when you and I got married, suddenly I you know, we changed all our stuff when we got married and now I am, you know, non-party affiliated. I'm non-party affiliated because I now I am all over the spectrum mm -hmm. on my beliefs. Like I'm conservative in some places, I'm liberal in some places. In some places, I might be considered by an outsider as a liberal, but really it's because I think we're focusing on the wrong issue. <laughs> so, you know, it's not that, you know, maybe I might fall into a liberal bucket, but it's also because I fall into this other conservative bucket and I've mixed them together and now you don't know what to call me, right? Well, but, what's funny is you're describing independence. Like right. you have now developed your own independent opinion. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting is in our country, the more independent your opinion, the less your opinion counts. Because nobody knows how what bucket to put you in. Because and you, and they because you require... have to be in a bucket yes. to have your vote count. Because it would require a conversation with you. Yep. And right. And, and it's so, so much easier to boil it down to a headline. Yes. Or a tweet. And then trying to teach that to your children as you yourself mm. are still evolving. Yeah. Right. So what the tack that I've taken with our kids is to try to teach them skills so they can critically think through it on their own. Like you and I are different. We have different faith bases, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're Christian. I'm Buddhist. I'm right. You're wrong. <laughs> You know, <laughs> who knows really until we die. Um, that's true. And, but then that's... and then there's no gotcha. There's no gotcha moment then. <laughs> oh, yeah. sorry. I'm gonna, you're going to miss the gotcha at the end. I'm going to miss it? I'm going to watch it happen. <laughs> Go ahead, though. Go ahead. But so, so like for our kids, we decided when we decided to have kids that we would let them discover on their own. They would see you practice your faith. They would see me practice my faith. They would meet other people of other faiths, right? Our nanny's Jewish, like, mm -hmm. um, and then we they- We lived in an, an Islamic we country. We lived in an Islamic country. They got to see that. And then they decide on their own. Like yeah. this important thing is to give them the skills to help them take in information and process the information mm -hmm. and make their own decision. Even though right now they're just very confused. Because <laughs> well, yeah. our poor children have seen so much of the world in yeah. their young knowledge base mm -hmm. that it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Because they don't they don't have like they naturally are not racist. They naturally are not like right. biased against a certain country or certain religion. Yeah. Like our kids have played with Iranian kids. Yeah. When we lived in the Middle East. Yeah. Like it's they don't understand why does America not like Iran, right? right? And it's, it's not developmentally appropriate for them to 
to be there yet. Correct. I mean, right? they wouldn't. It wouldn't even be something that resonates in their childhood mind. Right. Um, but it is interesting because it's beautiful in that way. Mm -hmm. But then they're also very confused whenever they see what most American children think is normal. Right? Yeah. Most American children are like, of course, I just finished studying in social studies class, which apparently is middle school. Yeah. Or even elementary school, right? Yeah. S basic civics class, whatever else. They are getting the version of America right. that has been propagandized mm. that we all got when we were eight, nine, ten years old, right? Right. And it's very difficult to try to challenge their friends' beliefs with them in the room. And you're like, oh, I don't want to tell your friends that the school yeah. they go to is full of whitewashed you know, educationally, de educational department approved curriculum. Yeah. And they haven't actually ever left Florida. Right. Right. It's, right. it's a challenge. So, yeah. uh, we're, we're trying to do, we're trying to do this a very specific way. We're trying to host and share this with you in a very specific way so that we can get your feedback so that we can continue to build a show that you enjoy, that you appreciate, that we can continue to give you. Mm -hmm. um, so if you like hearing more about parenthood, if you like hearing about how we raise our kids and what we struggle with, if you like Jihee's very soft, nondescript, <laughs> noncommittal answers, then you know why I fell in love with her. But either way, leave your comments below so that we know to come back to this or what to come back to when we talk about this in the future. Mm -hmm. But I do want to end on one very specific note. Mm -hmm. We are entrepreneurs now. You tell me all the time you never expected in your entire life that you would ever be an entrepreneur. Correct. And yet now you are the second in command of a company that is growing 200 to 300% every year. Yeah. How do you feel about being an entrepreneur? I wouldn't do it on my own. <laughs> That's fair. So That's we, fair. we talked about a concept a little bit earlier today about pacers. Um, so I a few years ago, I read an article about the... Um, there was a Kenyan gentleman who ran a marathon sub two hours. And in the, the little blurb that I read, what I thought was so fascinating. Ran a marathon? Sub two sub hours. Sub two hours? Mm -hmm. Most yeah. people are proud when they run half a marathon mm -hmm. in about two hours. Yeah, it was it was a record breaker. And what I found so interesting in the article is they talked about how he had 48 pacers mm -hmm. along the way. And... Um, and a pacer is a person who runs beside you. Correct. Who keeps pace yes. with a target pace and you just keep pace with the pacer. Right. So you make sure you're not running too slow right. or running too fast and burning yourself out. You're doing exactly the same pace and they are helping you along, yeah. right? And then at the same time, I was taking this online class and I learned that um, uh, Albert Einstein had a really good friend that he used to have chats with and he would use as a sounding board. And it was after a conversation with this best friend that he had that aha moment mm -hmm. where he wrote the theory of special relativity. And for me, these those ideas were so powerful that you can't go through life by yourself, right? And um, so having you, like when I chose you as my life partner, it was not because you were easy, because you are not easy. Uh, I'm pretty <laughs> well, easy. You're easy in some ways. <laughs> But, but I get it, I get it, I get it. You know, in the, in the really important lifelong partnership ways, like you are not easy, mm. but you make me grow, right? Like I can use you as a pacer for growth and life because all I have to do is keep up, mm. right? And when it comes to the business, it's never something I ever would have done on my own. I never would have. I mean, I my idea, which is how I was raised, was 
you do well in school, you do well in university, you get a professional job, you retire with a pension. And I was on that path. And then when you wanted to do something different, I trusted you 100% mm. and I followed. I've always right? been shocked how much you trust me. Oh, yeah. Because I don't know shit. <laughs> I don't know I what do, I'm doing. Though. I'm just... <laughs> I'm just like, maybe let's this, go. Maybe this is where what you say where I'm the smart one. Maybe this is, maybe it's the truth. Well, what's interesting is you, you talked about pacers mm -hmm. and the way that I see you in the business. Mm -hmm. And this is, I mean, there's all, to all the, all the mothers, wives, all the sensitive people out there who are <laughs> other than mothers and wives, you're going to get pissed at me for saying this, but you get me, you get me. <laughs> I'm sure. Thanks to you, I learned how to sail. You brought me to Florida. Yeah. You let me heal with the ocean after we left CIA. Yeah. I learned how to sail. Sailboats perform very well on fair weather days. Mm -hmm. And they are extremely dangerous and difficult to handle in a storm. Mm -hmm. During a storm, sailboats lower their sail and they throw something out called an anchor, a sea anchor, yeah. which is a giant parachute that catches water. Mm -hmm. And what that sea anchor does is it keeps the sailboats from ever flipping over or getting lost or getting thrown by the waves. Yeah. I honestly feel like you have always been my anchor, my sea anchor. So when the weather is fair, you're happy to come on board and we we haul ass. Yeah. And when the storm sets in, that's when you deploy and you keep mm -hmm. everything stable, right? Yeah. And it's funny because when storms hit, like I, I freak out a little bit because I'm mm -hmm. like, everything we've tried with the business, everything we've tried to build, the legacy we've given our children, we've gambled everything yeah. building a business. Our children are homeschooled. Mm -hmm. They don't go to school with other children. Mm -hmm. they, they're behind in some areas. They're ahead in other areas. They've traveled the world and they're going to continue doing all of those things, yeah. right? We have gambled their entire life on making this business work. Mm -hmm. So when stuff gets hard, when yeah. storms set in, I question everything about myself. Mm -hmm. And that's when you deploy and you keep mm -hmm. this ship right. So... Yeah. I feel like the reason we have had the success we've had is because when I doubt myself, you're right there to bring us stability again. And mm -hmm. when the weather gets good, you climb on beside me and I haul ass. And you get seasick sometimes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm really excited to start here. If you're watching this, you already know this channel started with zero subscribers. So, so hit subscribe and join. Be one of the first. We have every comment is a new comment. You're literally shaping the podcast and the direction we take this. You will decide what we talk about. You will decide if we invite guests or not. You'll decide how much we share. There's a lot that we're going to share. We're going to share more with you than we've shared with anybody ever. And that's the purpose of this podcast, right? right. We're building this for the incredible customer base yeah. who has given us this incredible company, yeah. right? We're not building this for us. We don't have some grandiose world mission that we're on right now. It's really just how do we deliver as much of our knowledge and our experience, our guidance, and how do we feed the people who literally put food on our table? Right, yeah, how do we grow our tribe and and support them the way that they have supported us? Exactly, yeah. and we started with an awesome studio, we started with some nice gear, we'll keep making it better and better, so we want your comments. We want you to subscribe. We want you to share us with your friends, share us with your family. If you're a if you're a married guy and I say something that you agree with, just forward this on to your wife. Don't be the one that says something stupid. Let me be the one that says something <laughs> stupid, right? 
And I'm sure that there's some version of that that rings true for women. I just don't think women say stupid stuff. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. And with that, we will uh, we will say goodnight for the day. And we'll be following up soon with the next episode. So stay tuned. Hit subscribe. And thank you so much for all of your support to Everyday Spy and for giving Jihee and I a chance to do this together and continue to contribute to your growth.